Good morning. My name is Kendra Gill. This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 from the English Standard Version. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. Good to see everyone here today. Uh, how many of you had turkey for breakfast this morning? <laughs> A little much, huh? Yeah. Uh, well, we have something new this morning. We're starting a new series. We finished the book of James last week, and we are starting a new series that we're calling True Love. And today's sermon, uh, the first of five, is simply called Advent. This word Advent means coming. And my favorite aspect about this word is that it's tense-free. So it doesn't just mean that Jesus came in the past. It doesn't just mean that we're looking forward to Jesus coming in the future. But it means that his coming is very much a force right now. That there is impact being made by the reality of his perfect tense coming. Because he came, because he will come again, and we live in this in-between stage, his coming is being uh, actualized, made manifest in our lives today. We live in this sort of in-between dispensation. There was a time before he came, and then in the fullness of time, he came. And he will come again, but right now, he's neither here nor there, but his coming is very much still real and impactful for us. And what I want to do today is to help us to understand this idea of the coming of Christ as it's made manifest in our everyday life. That this is not just some ethereal idea, but it's a concrete reality for us today. And what John is teaching us in chapter 1 is that the coming of Christ is really about human relationships. 
Everything boils down to how we view and treat one another. And I wish this wasn't true. A part of me wishes that religion and spirituality can be sort of a private affair, that I can sort of be a privately pious person. But the reality is, it's about human relationships. It gets messy, it gets complicated, and you need a lot of wisdom, a lot of courage to be able to do relationships well. We're going to start with, I think, me trying to give evidence for and reminding us that religion really is about relationships, that religion, according to James, is worthless unless it impacts this foundational, fundamental area of our life that we call relationships. That's where the value of religion is to be found. So part of my talk today is just convincing us, reminding us of that, and then we're going to go through that and end on a really practical application point that uh, John calls confession. It is the primary way that we should relate to each other is through this idea, practice called confession. I wrote a little bit about this in the loop this past week, but I said that people are always first and last. And principles and wisdom and truths, all of these things exist as a way to help us to love people, as a way to help us to see people and care for people, connect to people. That's really uh, what life is about. It's not about principles. And uh, this, um, I'm reminded of this every time I'm confronted with homelessness here in Seattle. And uh, I, I would say that for decades, I have wrestled with how to relate to homeless people in my life. Because I grew up in New York City, they were all around me. And I come now to Seattle, and I'm surrounded by homelessness all around me here, too. And I wish I could sort of have clarity about how to uh, relate to homeless people and make a decision and let it stand for all of eternity. And I don't have to rehash this, uh, navigate this every single time. But the truth is, uh, no matter how much it's settled in my mind, the principle is... Reality of the person in front of me always uh, confuses me. I've done my homework. I did research. I read things. I listened to podcasts. I've read the numbers on uh, how to help homeless people. And every single study you will find, if you Google this for yourself or pick up a book or two, most major cities, uh, and our city being among the leaders in how to relate to homeless people, will advise that you don't give directly to homeless people because there are systems in place and most homeless people know how to get the resources that they need. And so what the uh, research will tell you is to give to the organizations, give to the city, give to the people uh, who have set the system up, but don't give to people directly. This is what they'll tell you. And I know this to be a fact But in reality, when I'm confronted with an actual live person in front of me, I still don't know what to do. And I go through the same mental, uh, I have the same conversation in my head every single time. And so half the time I end up giving it, half the time I hold my ground. But the reality is 
I'm not supposed to have made a decision about a certain principle 10 years ago and carry it on today. In order for my heart to stay soft, I still have to wrestle with it every single time. And I think this is the way it's meant to be. And so I'm sort of done trying to figure it out and make a decision once and for all. This is the challenge of being a human being. Another area where there's sort of a, a battle between principles and people is in the area of child rearing. I wish I can sort of just have a rule, and this rule stands no matter what. But what about when there's tears right in front of me? You know, or when the case is being made by two different little human beings? What do I do? It's always a little bit confusing for me, but that's the way it's meant to be because when you're confronted with the reality of a person, the way you know a principle actually works is if it works on people. Does it lend itself to life? Does it support? Can it bear the weight of life? And if it can't, the principle goes out the window and the person should always win. Jesus talked about this, didn't he? He was being accused of being irreligious uh, when he healed on the Sabbath. And then what did Jesus say to the religious people who held on to the principle of the Sabbath so strongly? He said, why does the Sabbath exist? Why does the principle of the Sabbath exist? It exists for people to support life. Is it lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath? Of course it is, because the whole point of the Sabbath is to give life to people. That's why the Sabbath was created. He said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. Another example he gives is when if an animal falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, will you not exert energy and strength and violate, supposedly, one of the rules or principles to save life? Of course you will, because instinctively we know Principles exist for people. First and last, everything is about people. If you want to find the unifying theory of all of God's laws, Jesus said it's love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't ask the question, who is my neighbor? You go be the neighbor. And if you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, love people. The way you love God, the way you honor principles and wisdom and truths in your life is by seeing people. Everything is relational. Everything is about the people sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. That's what life boils down to. And what John is teaching us about Advent is that the coming of Christ is about relationships, okay? So let me show this to us, and we'll get to confession. So to restate the question, what is the impact of, the experience of, the difference of the coming of Christ? Why do we, as followers of Christ, care that Jesus came, that Jesus will come, and that his coming is real today? So John lays it out for us. Verse 1 and 2, we see these phrases, concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the eternal life, he says, was with the Father and was made manifest. 
So here is truth number one. Everything is about life. Life. However you define it. Some uh, physicists uh, or scientists will tell you that life, it actually is all about energy. It's about the flow or exchange of energy. That's what life is. Energy. Some philosophers will tell you that life is about consciousness. It's not just about existing, but it's about being aware of that existence, which you participate in. So if you exist, but you're not conscious, you're not actually alive. But if you exist and you're aware of it, you're a conscious being. Here's what John says life is. Life is about God, that God is the source of life. Life itself is defined as that which emanates from God. If you call it energy, if you call it consciousness, whatever you call it, it finds its source in God himself. The word of life, the eternal life, was with the Father. God is the source of life. And this life was made manifest. That is, we are an expression of the life of God. You live and move and have your being because you are made in God's image. Whatever theory of existence you subscribe to, whether you believe in a literal six-day creation, whether you believe that evolution is a process of God, or whatever you fit in in the middle, you come from God. You are a manifestation of life which finds its source in God. And then in verse 3, we have, with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This life of God that John is describing, this word of life, this eternal life, exists as we know it in the form of a triune relational Godhead. That there is consciousness or energy, or as C.S. Lewis calls it, a dance between the God the Father, between God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is to say, you, the person of you, the individual you, you are a manifestation of the life of God, yes, but the full expression of the divine life in you is made possible when you experience a relationship, a connection to each other. Just the way God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in indivisible relationship with each other. Out of that triune community overflows life. You bear the expression of that life, not just in yourself, the individual, but in you, the community. That you experience something of divine origin when you are connected to each other other. And so we have verse 3. It says, so that you too may have fellowship, meaning here's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in fellowship or connection to each other. And it's God's desire that we, 
experience this life that God himself has in his triune Godhead, that we have it as we relate to each other. And then verse 5, 6, and 7, we have these phrases, that God is light. There is such a thing as darkness. Practice the truth and all sin. These phrases mean this. Life as we experience it from God is conveyed to us through something that John calls light. And we know this uh, as a metaphor, um, a very real metaphor. We know that life as we know it, as we have known it, as we hope to know it for a long time, is made possible because of a star, a nearby star called the sun. Does anybody know? Has anybody been a geek enough to know how many minutes we would last on planet Earth if the sun suddenly disappeared? When the sun turns red because it's about to implode and spill its guts, what happens to us? How many minutes? How many seconds? About eight minutes? We can live for about eight minutes without life being conveyed to us through light. And that's what John is saying here, that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. So this life of God that's found in the triune Godhead overflows onto us, and we exist not as individuals but as a community experiencing the same kind of dance or energy between each other. But that is only possible because the life of God is being conveyed to us through light, just like the sun is conveyed to us through light. Okay, you got this? Another way to talk about this experience of light on us is what John calls the truth. When we are truthful to each other, we can experience this vibrant energy going back and forth, the dance between us. The opposite of light is darkness. If we do not practice the truth, if we're not truthful with each other, then we experience darkness. And the Life energy, the life source begins to diminish between us. And when that happens, we begin to die. In darkness, we die. So John is kind of an interesting character. We're going to do 1 John. We're going to do 2 John. We're going to do 3 John. And then later on, we're going to also do the book of John. So we're going to be, you know, neck deep in John for a couple of years. Okay, so that's coming. But he's interesting because he's so ethereal. His words are so grandiose. You know, he uses words like light and darkness. It's like, what does that mean? You know, it just sounds like Star Wars Episode Nine or something. But then he gets real practical really fast. He says, God is light. And then he says, so therefore confess your sins to one another. So it goes from, a, you know, way up here and goes immediately comes right down to earth. So John, as grandiose as, as he is, his feet are made of clay, just like us. And he boils it down very fast. So that's the whole sermon in a nutshell. God, in relationship to himself as the Trinity, is the definition of life. 
we mirror that on our plane by having that similar kind of connection to each other. The way this connection is maintained is if we are willing to be truthful to each other. That's what confession is. And as soon as we stop being truthful to each other, we begin to die. We begin to experience darkness. And maybe we'll last eight minutes at best. This is what John is saying. So here's a formula for us. And I realized in the first service this morning at 9 that this formula, instead of creating clarity, was a little bit uh, more confusing. But I'm going to give it a second shot here. Okay. So first, for those of you who are linear thinkers like me, we have the triune God. That's the beginning, the absolute start of everything, the Godhead. From God emerges life, light, truth, and connection. That's what God, the Godhead is. It's life, it's light, it's truth, it's connection. And that's the opposite of sin, including the denial of sin. which leads to darkness, disconnection, and death. But that can be remedied by confession and trust, which is made possible because of Christ in me, who is an atoning sacrifice for our sins, which is creating darkness and disconnection. So that's the formula. I'm not sure that clarifies things for you. But this is John. John is a really convoluted thinker. This is the way he works. Triune God, life, sin, darkness, confession, Christ. That's the formula. So let's break it down a little bit further. Uh, Advent, then, it's not just an idea up here, but right here in the here and now, Advent uh, is felt in life-giving relationships. The reality of the coming of Christ is made manifest in life-giving relationships. Jesus himself says in the book of John that he came to give us life to the full. When I was figuring out my faith and I was uh, trying to witness to my high school friends and college friends uh, back when I was really wrestling with the um, very basic ideas of Christianity. One of the arguments that my friends used to make against Christianity was, if I become religious, does that mean I have to stop having fun? And I would say, actually, Jesus says that he, give us, he came to give us life to the full, not to give us diminished life. And they would say, does that mean I get to go to more parties? Does that mean I get to have even more reckless, uh, recklessly abandoned fun? And I would get confused. What does life to the full mean? Because when I look around, it looks like Christians aren't having more fun. It looks like they're having less fun. And I would compare church to, I went to the University of Michigan, so we had that, you know, I was there when the Fab Five were there. Remember the Fab Five back in the 90s? Yeah. Anyways, um, uh, sports were a big part of my life in college, and I would compare these sporting events to church. 
Guess which group of people were having more fun? Not church people. And so I thought about what does it mean that Jesus came to give us life to the full? It doesn't mean you're going to have more fun if you become a Christian. Can we just admit this, Christians? The charade is over. We're not going to convince anybody that being a Christian means having more fun, necessarily. Here's what being a Christian means. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, it means that you are going to have more truthful, more life-giving relationships. Because the cornerstone of what it means to be a follower of Christ is that Jesus gave himself for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when I say sins, I'm not talking about personal piety. I'm talking about things that break relationships. Things that are impediments to connection to each other. When the Bible says that he cleanses us of our sins, it means that he's now giving us courage to confess our sins also because they have already been forgiven. And when we confess our sins to one another, it creates connection. So life to the full, according to John's theology, is mostly relational. As a follower of Christ, if you're in this room and you claim to follow Christ, one of the primary areas that should be improving in your life are relationships. It doesn't mean that people like you more or your jokes are funnier, though I wish that were true, especially for me. It means that you have courage and humility to be honest and courageous and truthful in your relationships. It means that you're willing to lose. It means that you're willing to forgive. It means that you're willing to move forward. It means that you're willing to have hope. It means that you are no longer going to uh, say of people, that person's never going to change. It means that you're always willing to hold out for some redemptive work that God is doing in their life. You know, one of the first uh, descriptors of love is patience. 1 Corinthians 13, love is primarily, meaning first, First of all, patient, that we are willing to wait and be absorbent as God is working in other people's lives. That means you're willing to be patient as God is working in your life. And the way you know God's working in your life is not because you're becoming a better human being all by yourself, but you are figuring out how to do relationships more truthfully. I know we just, a lot of us spent time with our families this past weekend. Uh, I hope my little um, tips were helpful that I put out in the bulletin. How many of you have had a falling out this weekend? Just kidding, don't raise your hands. (laughs) Your religion boils down to relationships. Personal piety is second. Personal morality are principles that serve people. 
Who cares if you're holy all by yourself, isolated in a corner? You have to get out and start connecting with people in truthful ways. Um, two, piece of, two pieces of uh, outside information that were helpful for me in thinking about this. Uh, Dr. Brian Kay, theologian, psychologist, you could read more about him in the sermon notes. He presents a, what he calls a model of life. And uh, he's primarily a theologian, but he's also a psychologist. And he says this, that life comprehensively is defined as relationships. He says that what it means to be a human being is to be in relationship. He says that humanness itself is defined by our, our ability to be empathetic to each other. That's it. That's what separates us from the beasts of the field is empathy, our capacity for relationships. And he says all of our life is defined as relationships that fall into four main categories. The first is your relationship with God. Second is relationship with others. Third is relationship with the world. And by that, he means things that are not people, like your work uh, or like your life purpose or creation. And then lastly, it's your relationship with yourself. Everything in your life falls into one of these four categories. He also says that we hurt others. We hurt ourselves. We are hurt by others. What that means is we are both and always victim and perpetrator. None of us are only guilty. None of us are only innocent. We're both always guilty and innocent, victim and perpetrator. But nevertheless, we are made to exist in connection, not isolation from each other. And our relational capacity is the very definition of what it means to be a human being. An example of this that I thought of immediately, because uh, I've studied this a little bit, is uh, uh, feral children. Feral children are human beings that are raised with parents or in the wild, I mean, without parents or other human contact. And it's often they're uh, with dogs or just sort of in isolation by themselves. And there are several cases of feral children who were discovered later on in life, and then they the effort that's made to reintroduce them to society. And there are zero cases of successful sort of re-attachment uh, to human society uh, if you grow up as a feral child. And if you want to hear more about this, it's kind of fascinating, is you can go on YouTube and type in feral, and you can see interviews and videotapes of children uh, um, who are feral. And what they found is that the key thing that feral children are unable to learn past a certain life stage is empathy. Their ability to see themselves in the other person. Because they didn't grow up with other human beings, they don't know that they are human. Nobody validated their humanness, and they don't know that the other person is the same as them. So they may hurt the other person not knowing that hurting uh, that person that way is painful because they don't relate to that person, right? And so our relational capacity really is at the heart of what it means to be human. Another uh, 
uh, area of study that was helpful for me in this sermon topic is uh, studies by Dr. Mary Ainsworth. And she talks about attachment theory. And some of you know what attachment theory is. But it basically explains how people uh, learn to respond to separation and distress in relationships. So to be in relationship with each other means to experience disappointments. What happens after you're disappointed in a relationship? How do you respond? And she says there are three basic ways that we respond. One is what she calls secure. If you fall into this category, in general, you're pretty good at bouncing right back. And you will reattach to that person who disappointed you. A second category of people uh, are what she calls anxious avoidant. And these are people who, after you're disappointed, you avoid your feelings of disappointment or anger or hurt. uh, And you either ignore your feelings or you ignore the other person. But you still sort of struggle with reattaching. And then a third category of people are what she calls anxious ambivalent. And these are people who get angry and they refuse comfort and reconnection after they've been disappointed in relationships. All that to say that us being connected is so crucial for our life that our defense mechanisms start kicking in high gear when we're disappointed in relationships. Not because we don't want relationships, but because we want them so very badly. To be in relationship to each other is to be alive. And to be in healthy relationships is to have life to the full. For all of us who claim to be religious, who claim to be followers of Christ, I have to ask this question, what is the purpose of religion? The purpose of religion is not to guide you as you live your life, including relationships. I would say that the purpose of religion is not personal piety or personal morality or personal success. It's not primarily personal at all. The purpose of religion is connection. All of religion, all religions should exist to help us experience reconciliation, reconnection, reattachment to the person of God, to the people of God, and to the purposes of God. To use um, the language we've used before, our uh, four categories of God, people, the world, and others. Unless we are experiencing connection in these four main areas, religion is, according to James, worthless. It has no value. Religion isn't so that you can feel good about yourself because you came to church or you have some higher ideals you strive for. Religion really is about how you relate to other people. And religions or worldviews or philosophies that don't address this core human need for relationships are, according to John here, are deceptive. 
and ultimately it's sinful. There are some religions that don't actually send you towards people, but it isolates you from people. One of the primary signs that a religion is a cult, for example, is what? It isolates you from people. It creates disconnection. It brings darkness into your life. Any religion, any philosophy, any worldview, any system, any advice that doesn't lead you to relate better to other people is dangerous. And it can be deceptive, and it's ultimately, it's sinful. Romans chapter 5 says, The love of God has been poured out into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know what that is? Crying, Abba, Father. I always thought, you know, for years and years that that's so cheesy. I never cry out, Abba, Father. Anybody here this morning cried out, Abba, Father? No, none of us do that. What is Abba, Father? This is just sort of baby language. It's a bid for connection, to reattach to God. And we have all our own personal ways of crying out for connection. And that's what that is. That the purpose of Christianity, Christian religion, the love of God being poured out in our hearts, it's a bid for reattachment. I have a baby sister. Uh, She's 14 years younger than me. By now, she knows that she was not planned. She's an accident. Um, We do talk about this sometimes. It's fun at family get-togethers to remind her how untimely born she was. But uh, because of that, you know, me and my other sisters, we sort of raised her. My mom was still working, and so we changed the diapers. We fed her. We sort of know the whole deal with her. Uh, and when I was going away to college, that was a really confusing time for her and, and for me too. Because what would happen is right before I left, she would start getting angry. She became uh, the ambivalent type. And she would start creating, preemptively creating distance or picking a fight or something. And then when I would come back from college, uh, for the first hour or so, she would become avoidant. And uh, she would pretend I wasn't there or pretend she didn't want to... Uh, play with me or connect to me. Uh, for about an hour, I sort of gave her, my, gave her her space. But after that, she immediately reattached, and we had a great time. One specific memory that came to mind is when we would lay in my bed, because uh, that was in the basement. It was all pitch black. We'd have my mag light flashlight, and I'd spit on the flashlight, and then we'd shine it into the ceiling and look like we were on the moon. And then we'd wipe that spit off, and then she would spit, and then it'd be a different moon. And we would do this for hours, and it was so much fun. Completely pointless, but we're connecting to each other. It was life to the full. Any advice you can give me about family that didn't bolster that relationship would be deemed worthless. Because the purpose of advice and truth and religion and worldviews and principles really is people. And I want to show you that Christianity really is about people too. Uh, Verse 9 has this word unrighteousness. Righteousness, according to the Bible, Old Testament and New, is not moral perfection. But it's relational connection. Unrighteousness is relational disconnection. 
I've talked about this before. Let me say one more time. The righteous ones, the Sadiqims in the Old Testament, were those who gave their life for their village. And when you were to, if you were to sacrifice your life or risk your life for the sake of the tribe or the village, you were declared a Sadiqim or a righteous one. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called God's righteousness because Jesus is our connection to God. And so if we are to be righteous, it means we're connected to God through Christ. It's not us being morally perfect. It's us connecting to Christ, who is God's righteousness. And so righteousness in the Bible is not about personal moral perfection, but it's, again, about relationships. The primary way, now we're really getting down to uh, a practical application here, and I feel like this is a little bit invasive, so I know application is always invasive, but this is going to feel extra invasive. Uh, the primary way that we practice religion, I mean really concretely, is when we confess our sin to one another. I just want to let that settle in for a second. The primary way that you are to practice your religion is by confessing your sin to one another. Just think about how intrusive that is. If you have to confront somebody, your strategy, the step you lead with is confession. It's not confrontation. If you want to have a heart-to-heart -heart with somebody, the way you do that is by leading with confession. The way you primarily relate to your spouse is confession. The way you primarily lead with your children is confession. The way you create life, according to John, is confession. The way you practice your religion is confession. Everything comes down to confession. Say something that's true and honest about a mistake that you have made, about a wrong you have done, about a misnomer you have held in your head. Lead with something wrong, something bad, something dark about yourself each and every time. And if you do that, it creates connection. It leads to life. Of course, you know, the opposite is uh, obvious. If you lead with accusation, does it lead to life? If you confess their sins as a first step, does it lead to life? It's fun, but it doesn't lead to life. So I feel like this is really, really practical. We see this, how um, uh, Dr. Brian's categories again appear. Uh, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness or all disconnection. That's verse 9. With others, verse 7, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we're leading with confession, we are connected to each other. And then with the world, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. The way you relate to your work, the way you relate to creation, the way you relate to everything else is healed if you are willing to lead with confession. And then with yourself, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive who? 
ourselves, your relationship to yourself. So these are the four categories that Brian gave us. And here we see how confession addresses all four categories, addresses every relational category in your life. You say you want life to the full. You say you want to follow Christ. You say you want to celebrate Advent. How do you do it? Ask me how. Confess your sin to one another. So this Christmas season, here's what I'd like us to do. Matthew 5, 24. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. I know that there's a place for timing. There's a place for wisdom. And you don't want to just... Just leave your mouth open and have confessions flowing 24-7. And whoever sort of in the range of your spray, you know, gets caught with your... That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying be dumb and unwise about how you confess your sin to one another. But when given the opportunity, confess. If you are pondering a certain relationship, think about what you might confess. Just be biased towards confession this Christmas season. Just, just be a little bit more bent that way and see what happens. See if there's change in life to the full that happens. See if there is light that begins to be uh, sort of present in that relationship that wasn't there before. I first really confess that I have a hard time reattaching. I have my defense mechanisms. I can get vindictive. I can feel punishing inside. If somebody wrongs me or uh, trips me up in some way, you know, I want to hold my grudge. I want to reserve the right to not speak to them or to be passive aggressive or be angry or be unforgiving. That's true. Sometimes it's fearful for me, so I just ignore it. I become avoidant. And sometimes there's enough foundation in that relationship, I can just reattach immediately. But just along with you, it's a real area of struggle for me. And I don't preach this message because I've arrived. I preach this as somebody desperate for connection and life in my life. But I know that we all are. And so as we begin this Advent season, it's my prayer that with God's help, that Christ, the forgiver of your sins, would be in you. That he would be advocating for love and truth and light in your life as you find the courage to confess your sins and experience true love. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give you a couple of minutes to pray. I want to invite you to think about um, people in your life. I know that many of us have um, tense relationships. And uh, I want to ask you to just bring that before God right now. You see that person's face or you have a feeling. Say, God, I want to lift up this face. I want to uh, confess before you this feeling that I have, this feeling of anger or fear or shame confusion, defensiveness. 
find some courage to say, this person has hurt me, I'm vulnerable, or this person has disappointed me. Or maybe you're a perpetrator, and there are people you have hurt, and you've been in denial about that. Maybe you need to leave your gift and initiate a conversation. God, the lights all around us, in the streets, up on the stage, in our homes, the decorations, all that is just sort of symbolic of the light that we crave uh, in our relationships. Even as we experience a different kind of light all around us in this holiday season, I pray that we would uh, experience real light in our relationships. Help us to confess our sin to one another and experience the life that you have for us. I pray for maybe a breakthrough or two in a relationship that's been long-standingly difficult. I pray for maybe the release of resentment or some uh, forgiveness just sort of clicking forward. We feel a change in us, in our hearts, and what we're holding on to. God, may your light shine in our life this Christmas season. Thank you that Jesus came to bring light. In Jesus' name, amen.